Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finding a way forward through the Red Sea at Davos in the presidential campaigns and once again in Congress. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard and the fiscal path ahead for the U.S. government. Our fiscal problems are much more serious than they were in 1991 or 1993. Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek on plotting a new course for ESG investing. The economics of solar and wind have changed. Today, they are very economic. And Blair Efron of Centerview Partners on getting mergers and acquisitions back on track. M&A. Uh, feels like it'd be much more important to them in, in 24 than it was in 2023. Global Wall Street spent the week looking at some hard problems and searching for some solutions as attacks from Houthi rebels on commercial shipping in the Red Sea worsened despite U.S. and British military action. I don't think it was possible to go on allowing these attacks to continue in the Red Sea. In Davos, the great and the good gathered for their annual meetings, which this year focused on the newest bright and shiny object, generative AI. It's not yet 
like replacing jobs in the way or to the degree that people thought it was going to. What we're doing is we're addressing some of the most profound social challenges with AI in ways that are transformative. Even as Secretary of State Blinken had trouble getting out of town because his plane broke down, only adding to Boeing's problems. In the frozen tundra of Iowa, former President Trump found his way forward with a resounding victory in the caucuses there. The important thing is for us to uh, just, you know, take the victory tonight and send a message to the nation and the world that, that uh, the Republican Party is uh, going to be supporting once again Donald J. Trump for the presidency. And back in Washington, Congress continued to struggle to come up with some set of compromises to avoid a government shutdown. Congress has been able to keep the government open only by kind of kicking the can down the road. Whatever the struggles the rest of us may have had this week, the markets certainly had no trouble finding their way as the S&P 500 closed at a record high for the first time in two years, up almost 1.2% on the shortened trading week. That put it at 48.39, which is only about 100 points below the median number the Bloomberg L's have for the S&P to close at the end of the entire year. The Nasdaq was up as well by 2.26%, while the yield on the 10-year marched back up above 4%, adding almost 20 basis points to end the week at 4.13. Here to take us through the record-breaking week, we welcome back Peter Boris. He's chairman and CEO of Computer Trading Corporation. Peter, thank you so much for being here. With pleasure. Pick the right week. Record week in the S&P. What do you make of what we saw this week in the equity markets? Well, the week itself was a bit fascinating, just if you listen to, you know, your, your preview there. So everybody loves higher markets, and this was incredible week, right? Short week, holiday week. Uh, at the same time, you had global uncertainty, which was just mentioned. Uh, maybe there was optimism because of the fiscal deal, as your person just said, to kick the can down the road. But the fact that interest rates are higher, faster than people expected, is uh, something that you need to watch. I've never seen so many people prepare to, for interest rate cuts and then keep pushing out the forecast. So I guess if you're going to forecast, forecast often. <laughs> so one of the things that you are so astute at is, is really understanding the way the markets work. Is that the thing that's driving it right now? Is it that the anticipation of cuts from the Federal Reserve? And are the markets getting a little ahead of themselves, even though they came off a little bit this week? Yes, there's this expectation that the Fed itself is trying to tamper in the sense that all the public statements this week are, hey, we're not going to uh, cut as soon as you think. The March uh, futures markets have really cut the probability of, of a cut then in half. It's highly unlikely in an election year to see the Fed cut so many times. Historically, that has just not happened. Well, I was wondering about that historically, because you have that historical perspective. Uh, does the Fed have to be a little concerned, particularly as we get into the year, that if they start cutting a lot, it looks like they've got their thumb on the scale of the election? That's going to be a problem, because every point that takes place then becomes a question of, are you favoring one candidate over the other? So if they cut, Trump's going to say, oh, boy, you're just doing it to support Biden. If they don't do anything, then the Biden camp may say, well, you're doing this just to support Trump. It's a very no-win situation. But you have to look at the economic data. Someone tell me why the Fed needs to cut. Hmm. Equity prices are at record highs. That's a good thing. 
crude oil, given all the uncertainty in the Middle East, is still in the middle of its range. Unemployment is low. We just had a number yesterday on initial unemployment claims that was the lowest in decades. Yeah. If I'm sitting at the Fed, that's a pretty good thing. Why do I have to do something? Peter, it's always great to have you with us. That's Peter Borsch of Computer Trading. I don't think the U.S. has lost that vibrancy. We're going to regain it in the second half of this decade. The second half of this decade, one of the overriding issues facing the economy and the political decision makers will be the infrastructure of the United States to rehabilitate our educational facilities. Uh, to rehabilitate uh, our roads, our communications, our environment. I think the solution to the budget deficit problem is really twofold. Number one, create strong, sustainable economic growth by, as you said, getting out of the way of the private sector, support entrepreneurship, investment incentives, and so forth. Number two, we've got to restrain federal spending. And I think on this point, there's a lot more work to be done. That was Henry Kaufman on Wall Street Week back in 1991 and Larry Kudlow appearing with Louis Ruckheiser in 1993, taking decidedly different views on spending and the role of government. For his thoughts on where we should be heading in 2024, we welcome now our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So Larry, welcome back. Great to have you here. We've talked about some aspects of this before. I mean, I could say it's guns, butter, and deficit. Uh, the question of defense spending, the question of investing in future productivity, the question of deficit. If you were the architect once again, if you U.S. fiscal policy over the longer term, where should we be heading? Let's start with the recognition that our fiscal problems are much more serious than they were in 1991 or 1993. Then we had budget, budget debts uh, relative to GDP in the 30% range with out-year deficits perhaps in the 5% range on honest forecasts. Today, we have a debt-to-GDP ratio above 100% with out-year debts in uh, the 10% of GDP range. So we've got a much more serious problem, number one. Number two, then we were reaping a Cold War dividend from the end of the Cold uh, War, and we could reasonably expect defense spending as a share of GDP to be falling. Today, though it's not reflected in the CBO forecast, almost certainly we are going to have to substantially increase defense spending and spending on a broader range of what in a sense, are international security activities, issues like uh, global health, issues like resilience, most importantly, uh, climate change. So we've got a very different kind of uh, problem. There are places where we're going to need to cut government spending. We need to control cost growth in health care. But we've already controlled it substantially over the next decade, and I suspect the challenge is going to be to maintain our momentum, not lose that momentum, and it's going to be very difficult to get even more momentum out of uh, health care uh, costs. So one of the questions people ask is, if you increase taxes, are you going to reduce productivity? No. First of all, the last time we did it, in 1993, productivity soared afterwards. When we had much higher tax rates in the United States in the 50s, the 60s, and the early 70s, 
productivity growth was more rapid than it has been in recent years. The vast majority of the funds that flow into venture capital come from institutions like state pension funds, university endowments that are tax-free uh, investments. It defies belief that the young Bill Gates, the young Mark Zuckerberg, the young Steve Jobs would have not done their projects if they thought they would have had to pay a bit higher capital gains uh, taxes and we would have been uh, without uh, those companies. Okay, Larry, thank you so much for being back with us again this week. That is Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, we go to Davos, where Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek will bring us up to speed on two central topics, China and the future of ESG investing. Most people, including myself, you know, and people who've been um, in the world of impact investing, do not necessarily like the word ESG. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. A good part of global Wall Street gathered for the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos this week. And a good part of the discussion returned to topics we've discussed here before. 
China and climate. Now, Sonny Beschler is a founder and CEO of Rock Creek, joins us now fresh back from the Swiss Alps. So, Sonny, welcome. It's good to have you back in this country. Uh, tell us uh, what came out of Davos and start with China for a moment because we did have the Prime Minister go over, Prime Minister Lee go over. He was very proud of 5% GDP. Some people are questioning some of those numbers. Uh, what was the discussion at Davos about China and where it stands? David, the number is 5.2. Obviously, it looked a little better than what um, the, the estimates had been. But as you said, the numbers are less credible these days. I think the general sense that is coming up from China is very simple. Obviously, you had the biggest delegation, I think maybe ever, from China, certainly bigger than the U.S. delegation this year. Um, but the uh, the while the the language was about we're open for business. In practice, as we know, markets were down 23% outflows, huge outflows last year. Markets are down 10% already in China this year. And if you look at uh, both the economic and the social problems that China is facing, things are only unfortunately getting worse. Because if we look, uh, for those of us who've been long-term investors in China, if you look over 20 years, the first 10 years of that 20-year period, China did fairly well. The last 10 years in China, if you were just a regular investor in their equity markets, you were um, you maybe made a percent or two percent. So when you look at that and you look at the numbers of uh, youth unemployment, those numbers also, by the way, uh, came out. They used to show a 20 some percent uh, youth unemployment number. They stopped putting that number out, and they started a new index, uh, which shows 14.1, but it excludes college students. That, those numbers are showing that student aspirations and young people's aspirations right now in China, those between like 16 to 24, have diminished. China was a country where in the last 20 years, there was a lot of hope. So people thought they would do better. Than, uh, than their parents. They thought by getting a better education, et cetera, more job opportunities, they would do better. Those aspirations, unfortunately, are getting squashed for the, uh, for the younger population. And then for the urban sort of established mature population, the value of the real estate has come down. So if we look at the next 10 years, while the delegations, uh, whether it's this week or a lot of Chinese um, delegations are going all over the world right now, trying to uh, woo investors as we speak, it's hard to be uh, convincing. Of course, valuations are low, but what is the trigger to get them up? Well, what about something you just referred to? Because uh, Prime Minister Li and others within the administration in China have been saying, we're going to be pro-business. We're going to be pro-business. Do we have any sense of actually delivering on that promise? Because as you suggest, Afsani, they've got a big problem with foreign direct investment, which has gone negative, for goodness sakes. I think they are saying they're pro-investments. At the same time, the actions over the last year, especially, were maybe less friendly just to investors in general. A lot of the money that went even into their own local markets was going to the SOEs versus their own private markets. The power of the central bank was getting diminished. So while they're making those statements, in practice, unfortunately, they are being less business friendly because there's less money is going into their own private sector and the fact that central bank is getting more and more directives from the central government. Uh, Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, while at Davos, says that basically the risk reward has changed dramatically for China. Do you agree with that? Completely. Uh, but also, I just want to say, even though the risk reward was good the last 10 years, China did really well 
I'm not sure if investors made as much money. Venture investors made a ton of money early on, but you know, for the companies that are not sold, it's not clear that they would be able to get out of those positions right now. So I think Jamie is very correct in saying the next uh, you know few years. Um, a lot would have to change in China in terms of economic policies to make it more interesting to investors, both private and public investors. That's economic policy, which is something that the administration in China can do something about. What about demographics? Because we also got numbers out for demographics, which we're not encouraging. Exactly. And I think uh, the population keeps on getting smaller. And if you have a population that is diminishing in terms of because of the previous policies in terms of children that they had, uh, even though that policy has changed, the issue is that together with the aspiration of young people and the fact that there is this youth unemployment really does not bode very well. And the fact that a lot of Chinese investments um, of households was in real estate, and we know that that sector is hugely down and even policies are not going to fix that and last but not least a lot of the young people have been getting trained to go into services jobs jobs that are diminishing also so all of that the demographics but also the composition of the job market that is changing um, again is not very positive uh, what was the discussion at Davos about what used to be called ESG? ESG's sort of got a bad name now. Larry Fink says he doesn't want to say that anymore. But whatever you call about it, climate-related investment, what was the discussion? I think, broadly speaking, um, the, you know, uh, I think World Economic Forum has been doing a number of studies also over the last year on uh, on the ESG topic, uh, and um, and most people, including myself, you know, and people have been. Um, in the world of impact investing do not necessarily like the word ESG. There is a political issue going on with ESG and DI. Putting that aside for a second, basically, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement that there are issues with uh, and risks with uh, climate-related issues. Plus, the economics of solar and wind have changed hugely. And today, they are very economic in many parts of the world, whether it's US, whether it's Africa, whether it's Norway, whether it is the rest of Europe. What we're seeing is that there is uh, China itself, you know, where you're seeing that um, that whether it is EV cars or it's solar panels, they're going to be a cheaper alternative than uh, relying on oil and gas. So the decisions are economic. I think the Chinese obviously are looking at their own um, climate-related issues, their, the quality of air, the quality of water, the quality of food that is coming out and is sometimes hazardous, and they are investing a lot in those areas. Plus, that is the one bright spot, um, I would say, in China. Well, and Afsani, as you know so well, in life and in business, what you call something really matters. And go away from ESG or even climate. Talk about infrastructure. Last week, we had this big deal announced with BlackRock and GIP, BioEvacuation, you know well, as well as Laurie Frank. And, and yes. talking to them about the opportunity they see there in infrastructure, an awful lot of it seems to go back to climate and the investment we need to make to get to net zero. Exactly. And I think while you will see that uh, Larry may not be using those terms and uh, politically very, very careful on the terminology he's using, you can see what he's investing in. And, uh, and I think that is a really positive sign in the sense that Infrastructure is getting built. GIP obviously is one of the uh, biggest investors in this area. I think, uh, you know, as uh, one of the, um, my colleagues, one of the ex-World Bank um, presidents also is uh, is uh, been there as well. And what you see is that, um, that a lot of their portfolio is 
increasingly investing in energy transition, in uh, bringing power alliance and grid expansion of power grids. It's uh, looking at ports and looking at um, at infrastructure with an uh, with a. Um, ESG lens. And it's not just GIP, it's not just BlackRock. If you look, look at Prologis, if you look at really any large company investing in infrastructure or logistics, looking at two areas. One is um, clean energy and energy transition in order to reduce costs and uh, increase reliability and reduce risks, and also AI, obviously. And those are getting more and more intertwined, and the uh, interrelationship between AI and clean energy, I think, will be an interesting area to watch. Asani, thank you so much. Always great to have you on Wall Street Week. There's Asani Beshlas of Rock Creek. Coming up, what corporate leaders should be thinking about as we move toward the November elections in the United States. We'll ask Blair Efron of Centerview Partners. I think it's important to either candidate that we uh, rein in uh, our deficit. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Corporate transactions have hit a dry spell. After a blockbuster year in 2021, mergers and acquisitions stalled in 2023. Though by the summer, bankers like Evercore's Ralph Schlossstein were hoping for more action in the second half of the year. Announced uh, M&A for the first six months of the year was down, the dollar volume was down 40 percent. 
Uh, I don't expect it will be quite as bad uh, in the second half of the year, uh, but certainly the amount of dialogue among our clients is up quite dramatically and our backlogs are up. And there were some areas where things did pick up, like on international deals. This year was very busy for us on cross-border M&A. So we could, we're seeing one companies listed outside the U.S. just migrate to another new listing here and turning it into their primary listing, getting a multiple bump. bump. But we could also just see a lot of U.S. companies spending their cash overseas. And as we get into 2024, there's reason to believe there's the appetite out there, whether it's from private credit. If you look at the likely demand for private credit, if you take the $2.4 trillion of dry powder in private equity funds, and you assume five plus billion dollars of deals, there's an enormous demand for private credit. Or in tech, where valuations may be making deals more compelling. I do think investors have more confidence in the levels that we're at on, from a valuation standpoint more broadly in technology mm -hmm. and are starting to see the competing tension in the public market of M&A from strategic, you know, take privates, for example, or, or from take privates or from strategic activity leading yeah. into the end of this year. But when you talk with the bank leading the league tables in M&A, Goldman Sachs, there remains a big difference between the interest and appetite and the deals making it over the finish line. When you think about what really drives the future M&A, uh, we think there's a lot of pent-up demand. The pipeline of dialogue is as robust as we have seen. Um, what the challenge has been is just getting the fingers to meet on transactions. And to take us through where we are in mergers acquisitions right now, Blair Efron, co-founder of Centerview Partners. So Blair, this is really what you do for a living. Uh, we've talked a lot about the fact that the mergers acquisitions were way up, came way down, and then we've talked about a pipeline. You've talked about in this program, pipeline coming. It's been coming for a while now. When is it actually going to get here? So great question. Obviously, uh, you're an investment banker. You're pretty naturally optimistic. <laughs> so uh, uh, we always think that things will be better. I would tell you this. We do see the shoots. And, and actually, it's already happening. In January, for example, if you think about uh, larger transactions, we've already had four transactions in the first two weeks, over $10 billion. You compare that to last year's entire first quarter, there was five transactions over $10 billion. So, th so it is happening, one. Two. Um, the fact is there's an optimism in the C-suite uh, that we have uh, avoided a significant downturn and, in, in fact, that we'll have a tailwind and some growth. And that's always a good environment in which to do uh, M&A, and we're getting a sense of that strongly. Three, there's a pent-up demand. We haven't had an important uh, M&A in 18 months. Last year was a $3 trillion market. That compares to an average the five years before that four to four and a half trillion. So there is this demand, David. And remember, companies are actually really good at thinking about inorganic activity, M&A activity, um, in a way that 20 years ago wouldn't have been the case. So it's such a core part of what they do that there's a little bit of uh, makeup. And then you think about the financing markets. There's more liquidity, not perfect, but more. And uh, what we see on financing, for example, on leverage deals, uh, at this point, you can get five to five and a half times leverage. If you go back six months ago, it would have been in the fours. So there's a lot of reason to think um, it is uh, a good time. And the last thing I'd say is we're in an election year. And the dirty little secret is 20 out of the past 24 presidential elections, markets have done well and gone up in the last year. 
Talk about the financing for a second. There are some people, particularly in private equity, who are saying if, in fact, the Fed cuts, cuts earlier rather than later, that will really, really stimulate merchant acquisition. Is that your experience? I mean, is it important whether they cut in March or they cut in July, and is it important how much they cut this year? Hey, I'm not in that camp. I'm in the camp that uh, wherever we end up at the end of the year, uh, in terms of the rates, it's been priced in. Whether it happens in March or happens in May, um, will have limited impact on uh, my world. Uh, the trend will have a positive impact. The fact is, when uh, rates get cut from the first rate cut to the final rate cut, if you look at the past five times this has happened, markets have done very well. Okay, so, and that's what will be priced in. I think the bigger question is going to be valuation, number one. Um, and uh, after you've had such a uh, uh, run in the market, you have the obvious question, am I buying it at the XYZ company at the right time or not? And the way you think through that, and how long will the process take from a signing to a close? That actually continues to uh, be a big factor, as it should. So um, I think that as we find a level in the markets and things continue to settle out, it encourages both the buyer and the seller to say, okay, uh, there's something that can be done here. But in general, I just back up and say the conversations that I'm having, my firm's having with senior leaders across different industries, suggest that uh, M&A uh, feels like it'd be much more important for them in, in 24 than it was in 2023. So in financial media, which doesn't necessarily make it so, but in financial media, there's a lot of talk about private equity and having a lot of portfolio companies that need for private equity to actually get some money into the hands of some of the people who have given their money. Is that an impetus right now to have more transactions uh, done? I think private equity will be a very strong driver in 2024. If you uh, think about the years that preceding 2023, it was basically 40% of the market. Uh, there is such a uh, large group of companies that are looking for liquidity and uh, coming from private equity that I do think it'll be um, a very active time. And again, that goes directly to the financing markets as well. The financing arena will be uh, uh, more liquid than it was last year. And um, we're seeing most of the private equity uh, world uh, think about being more active. And frankly, to their credit, um, they slowed down activity at a moment when they should. There, you know, it's uh, so. Um, we, last year, it was much easier for a corporate to look at something and not think they had private equity competition. This year, when we see companies we're selling, uh, the interest is both corporate. We're already saying it, corporate and and private equity. How much of your business in merchant acquisition is driven by essentially the need to reform parts of a sector? I mean, I'm thinking of one that I come out of media right now. There's a lot of pressure right now for some of the big media companies to really think about the cards they've got and how they deal them and how they get rid of some, how they pick some up. How much of M&A is really driven by these big companies saying, you know, we got to really restructure? Today, I think it's most of it. Progress, Transformation is happening so quickly and is so disruptive that every company is saying, here's my portfolio today, but where's it going to be tomorrow? So even when you talk about your world, media, it used to be traditional media with three networks. Now it's <clears throat> traditional and non-traditional players. Apple, Google, Amazon are as active as Disney, Comcast, Paramount. Um, gaming, what is you know, technology? It all becomes one industry. If I go across any industry, that is... Um, uh, what we see. I look at the pharma world. The fact is, uh, life sciences is one of the biggest areas out there. Why? Because we have such innovation going on in this country. Um, 
so many companies you never heard of five years ago and never heard of that have become really important just uh, five years later, uh, that this becomes a window when you think about R&D for a big pharma company. It's more interesting in many ways to buy than, than build. Um, so I would say that uh, every business is being challenged in ways it never was before. And it's causing CEOs, it's causing boards, it's causing seasoned leaders to constantly rethink their ideal portfolio, recognizing there is never an end state portfolio anymore. It is always going to be evolving. And um, the good news is we have a, um, as talented and experienced a group of leaders as ever. So when a CEO undertakes M&A today, uh, uh, chances are strong that he or she is going to end up doing a good job and the right thing for the company, both strategically and financially. All of which supports your view that 2024 looks like it'll be a lot stronger than 2023 emergent acquisitions. What does that say for a set of you partners? Are you hiring? And if they are, you are hiring, what sorts of people are you hiring? Because it looks very different than it did certainly 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, because of some innovation. I'm not to speak of, for example, generative AI. Boy, that's a great question. First of all, we are hiring, so anybody has a resume, let us know. We're always hiring. Um, the skill set we look for is uh, um, probably different than you would think. We want people who can think critically, who can analyze situations, who have judgment, um, have an ability to make difficult problems distilled into sim more simple problems, and it's less about whether you can uh, make a great model. That was Blair Efron of Centerview Partners. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week in Davos with Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics and government, Stephanie Flanders. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.